0: In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, you will amen to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest that the gospel may be preached to every creature and your church, gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So hopefully this will actually be the last time I am talking this semester because next week we're supposed to have a guest speaker coming, but I have not gotten the final confirmation on whether said guest speaker will actually be showing up. Um, So who knows, it might be me after all. But then the week after that, Father Newman's going to be back talking about De Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And then, obviously, in December, the final talk, which will be on the Saturday, December 5th, I believe, will be by Robert Royal from the editor of The Catholic Thing and forget, I think it's the Faith and Reason Institute um, that he's in charge of as well. And anyway, he's going to come and talk about Vatican II 50 years later. Um, So, like I said, hopefully this is the last one that I will be doing. And as you can see from the numbers, a lot more people came when Father Newman spoke, so that's good. Now, what I was going to try to do tonight, setting up for the next two weeks, was to sort of lay the context for next week when we go through... um, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, and then the next week on Divine Revelation, to the two main documents of Vatican II to sort of lay the groundwork to understand the context of where they're coming from and what else is going on. Um, And Vatican I and II are intricately connected, that in many ways Vatican II is the finishing of Vatican I. And I tell you, this was by far and away the most difficult of all of these to try to prepare for. And the reason why was that starting with Vatican I, that it was not called in response to any particular heresy is what makes it difficult that you have the Council of Nicaea that it's in response to Arianism and is a very specific problem with a very specific solution and you have a nice little story going on in between and it just makes for an easy narrative um, which is easy to understand. Now Vatican I, which is going to be in, put it throw up the dates here, 1869 through 70, and then Vatican II, 1962 through 68, no wait, not 68, 65. Um, 68 is Humanae Vitae, that's what I was thinking of. Um, that when I say they weren't called in response to any particular heresy, what they were both in called for, was to basically the same purpose. People always think of this with Vatican II, but Vatican I is called for the same reason. And that is just sort of how to better preach the world or the gospel to the modern world. And for understanding that, and actually in a way you can say that Vatican I is called in response to a heresy, but it's a heresy called modernism, which Pius X later on calls the, the synthesis of all heresies. Um, so, it's kind of a huge, difficult thing to understand if you try to understand the heresy of modernism, because it's not just a specific teaching like Arianism that Jesus isn't fully God, but it's actually a fundamental shift in worldview which took place in, especially starting in the 1700s, the time of the Enlightenment. And, bless you. And so, to set the context, it's sort of necessary to understand how the general worldview of Europe had shifted during the 1700s. And I'm not gonna get into all of the specifics of the Enlightenment, um, which took place, but just timeline-wise, it's important to remember that, okay, so the general period of the 1700s, that's when you have the, the rise, partly coming out of um, the scientific revolution, et cetera, the rise of this movement called the Enlightenment, which in many ways you could, was characterized by um, a rational the rise of rash, scientific rationalism, likewise uh, the rise of skepticism, the rise of materialism and denial of the supernatural, but then also politically, this was a big part of this was the rise of liberalism, and the thing about all of these is they're all big topics to, that Involve fundamental shifts of worldview. So even like understanding liberalism, it's a big topic to try to properly understand what liberalism is. That there, I mean, there are certain tenets that we could say are part of it. So it's the idea of self-determination, government coming from the people, not necessarily from, for instance, the opposite extremity, like the divine right of kings. But even that, you have different sort of manifestations of liberalism the French have a very different understanding of liberalism in the late 1700s than the Americans. Um, but this was one of the main movements that's, that's going on. Now, as these writers in the 1700s, the, the classic writers, uh, Voltaire, Rousseau, Jean Locke, um, why did I say Jean Locke like he's French? Jean Locke, um, Montesquieu, like, there's a bunch of different ones and that to a certain extent and this came up a little bit last week that the church did not directly engage a lot of the enlightenment thinkers and actually in many ways the 1700s is the age when the enlightenment started to reign supreme in europe and the church was very much on the defense and a large portion of this is all of the rulers of europe jumped all over these ideas of the enlightenment because they granted them sort of an independence from the church, and it gave them a means by which to increase their own power. So the Catholic rulers in, in countries such as Spain, Portugal, Austria, are going to actively start persecuting the church in, trying, in ways of trying to basically conform the church to the ideals of the Enlightenment. So, I mean, in Portugal, you have the dictator, the Marquis de Pombal, who is... If you ever seen the movie The Mission, he's the one who's actively attacking and persecuting the Jesuits across, um, across um, South America, but even within there, um, within the Kingdom of Portugal. And actually, the Jesuits get kicked out of it this time because they were considered sort of, the in many ways, the greatest defenders against the Enlightenment. And they get kicked out of Spain, they get kicked out of Portugal, they get kicked out of Austria, and actually they get kicked out of every single country in Europe except for the Protestant country of Prussia, because for some reason the Enlightenment ruler there kind of liked them. Um, but anyway, the church was on the major decline in the 1700s. It was, if you want a century that was not good for the Catholic Church, the 1700s was it. I mean, there's a lot of centuries that were not good for the Catholic Church, but that's one in particular. And the Enlightenment was on the march, and the church was on the retreat. And this culminated, in many ways, with the French Revolution, which, obviously, where you had a country that was reforming itself entirely in the image of the Enlightenment, and you can go through the persecutions of the French Revolution, but the good sort of analogies of what's going on, is when they turn the Cathedral of Notre Dame and turn it into the Temple of Reason, where they, where they take a prostitute and put her on the, the altar of reason as the new, like, Queen of Reason. And they... Um, and they... Um, I mean, they do all sorts of stuff. They change the, the calendar into 10 days each week and abolish Sunday because it's much more symmetrical. And actually, they, they're so rational that they, there's almost a madness that comes with this because a lot of the stuff they do, it makes sense in the abstract, but when you confront the physical world, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So the 10-day calendar, it doesn't actually follow the way that the orbits actually are. And likewise, I was arguing with a friend of mine who's Canadian recently, and he was trying to under, couldn't understand why America doesn't go to the metric system. And uh, one of the things that I pointed out to him was, like, the metric system's great, Because he is a chemical or professor of chemical something or whatever. I'm like, in the scientific abstract, the metric system makes a lot of sense. But in the practical world, such as builders, such as chefs, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And for a large reason of it is, so if you're a builder... So when you take these abstract reason and just apply it to the way the world really is, if you're a builder and you're trying to measure something to 1.763 uh, meters, that's really hard. It's so much easier to measure something to seven feet, um, three inches or three and a quarter inches. And actually, in all those twelves and everything, you can actually perfectly bisect them, and it actually makes a lot. It's a lot easier. Or a baker, would you rather try to measure something to um, 23 grams or two and a half cups? I mean, so there's a certain degree that, as I was saying, that this when it meets the practical world, it doesn't really work. But the persecution that came with this sort of culminated in 1799, the French who were not happy with just keeping their reason and their, their rational revolution that resulted in lots of heads being chopped off. To themselves, they had to spread it to everyone else, spread the benefits of their revolution to everyone else, whether they wanted it or not. And so they in 1799, you had Pope Pius VI, who died in, in, French, um, in a French prison in Rome. And in many ways, it looked like the church is going to lose and the rationalism of the Enlightenment is going to win. And then, starting in 1799, you have Napoleon that takes over, and that, in many ways, he does a little bit to try to prop up the church for his own personal gains, but likewise, you have the next pope, Pius VII, who's going to be his prisoner. He's going to be persecuted by the church, the, the Enlightenment, which Napoleon, he's just going to take the ideas of the French Revolution and spread them on horseback across Europe, that likewise, it seems like, you know what? The church is losing. The door is open. Did someone lock the door? No, I think she just tried to open the wrong door. Um, one of them only unlocks. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway. Um, I have to remember what I was saying now alright oh yeah thank you alright that there's a great quote though by G.K. Chesterton that when things looked most dire at this time for the Catholic Church that um, where's the good quote that here you go but this funeral of Christianity was interrupted by the least expected incident of all the corpse came to life and that while it looked like Christianity was done for, that the 1800s are actually going to be a great century of Catholic revival in Europe. And a great example of that is that that very pope that Napoleon had imprisoned um, and had treated so poorly that Napoleon actually is going to die having received the last sacraments and reconciled as a faithful son of the Catholic Church by a priest sent by that very same pope. And that you're actually going to have a very series of good popes throughout the 1800s that in many ways culminates with the second longest reigning pope of all time, only behind Peter, Pope Pius IX, who gets a bad rap in history, um, but his name's fun in Italian, Pio Nono, that he is going to, in many many ways, oversee an enormous Catholic revival across Europe during the 1800s. Um, And what's interesting about it is that the governments of Europe are not going to ever fully go back to some sort of Catholic ideal of of these Catholic rulers actually um, being in line with the church. There's small attempts at that. But once Napoleon let the, the genie out of the bottle, once he uncorked liberalism and spread it across Europe, that while many rulers in different countries are going to try to stop that idea and keep it at bay, it's going to continually spread. I mean, so one of the hallmarks of the 1800s is revolutions across Europe, 1830, 1848, 1870, that there are these revolutions of liberalism spreading, and one thing that they're going to have in common is they're going to be very anti-Catholic and constantly persecuting the church. That one of the hallmarks of the century is an anti-clericalism that every time a country becomes a republic, that it seems like their very first thing they do is try to persecute the Catholic Church. But while they're doing that very thing and persecuting the Catholic Church, in many ways, kind of like the early church, that the actual believers of the church are going to become all the more fervent, and the common people of Europe are going to become more and more dedicated to their faith. So actually, it's interesting, if you look at the list of 1,700 Catholic saints, there's, it's not a huge list but you get into the 1800s, there are a ton of Catholic saints. Now, um, and when I talk about Pius IX getting a little bit of a bad rap, that he gets a bad rap as being sort of a giant reactionary, meaning that he was constantly standing up against all of these different movements that were going on in Europe. So he actually famously... He was scolding these these republics that were practicing their anti clericalism all the time. He has his famous syl- syllabus of errors where he goes through and basically states all of these lists all of these errors that Catholics cannot believe. And he actually has a famous quote in there where he says that one error is that if you believe that the Pope can and or should actually reconcile himself to modernity, um, that's an error. Um, and he actually has a, a an encyclical where he condemns the heresy of Americanism, um, that there's all sorts of different th- movements going on that historians, they tend to look at him just as this reactionary that he's basically a giant naysayer, that Europe's trying to progress, the modern world's trying to progress, and he's just sort of shaking his hands. I When I used to teach middle schoolers, and call them P.O. No-No, you just imagine him going like, no, no. Um, that, but... But the thing is that it's not entirely the way it was. Granted, he was very fervent in standing up to these movements when they were doing wrong, and it's it's important to remember that the history of liberalism, like I said before, in Europe is so fundamentally different in many ways than in America, that when a country became a republic in Europe in this period, the number one hallmark is that they would persecute the Catholic Church that it was a very fundamentally different understanding of liberalism, freedom, etc. in Europe than in the United States. And so oftentimes when he, the church, in particular him, are reacting against these movements, that he's not addressing it through an American context. He's addressing it through the French context of the French Revolution. Um, where are the British on the liberalism at that point? Yeah, I would put the British actually were much more close, actually much closer to America. And actually a good example of that is that Catholicism was very much rising in Britain at this time. I mean, there's a reason. I mean, it was still being persecuted a little bit, but this is when Catholicism was legalized in Britain. You still had persecutions of Catholics in Ireland, but at the same time, you had these big debates. And in particular, the Prime Minister Gladstone is actually going to side with the Irish and trying to not persecute him. And he gets considered the greatest prime minister of the, the century. But there's a reason why you're able to get figures like John Henry Newman, et cetera, coming out of England. Um, that is a good point. That, but, um, So anyway, and Pius IX, that he was not just a reactionary though. He wrote 38 encyclicals um, during his papacy. And they are on a huge range of topics the places where he's trying to defend the rights of the church, but also on missionary efforts, on all sorts of other um, items. And actually, and one thing if you I think is a great example of how you can't say that he's entirely against necessarily the, things, the modern world just because it's modern is the fact that he's the one that calls the First Vatican Council for the purpose of how to best address the modern world. And so, it calls the First Vatican Council. And it takes a little while because there's still so much chaos going on in Europe. Just like with the last council, um, Council of Trent. It took years in order to get the thing going because of all the wars and disease. Well, there's still plenty of wars going on at this time. And we have to remember particularly Italy was a complete mess. Um, that Italy was... There's no, was no country of Italy. This is the century where Italy gets unified as a country, and it gets unified through wars and coercion and all sorts of um, other shady dealings so that the, the Pope is still ruling central Italy and having to deal with all of these political messes at the same time. And, but anyway, he calls the council, Vatican I, and it's, and it's Evident from very early on that this is a very different council than every other council that's come before. And in particular, this is literally the first council that we could say that takes place in the modern world. And a lot of the stuff that you can say of it is true of this next council, Vatican II. And that is the first time that we have detailed accounts of everything that goes on at the council because you have the rise of the media that, you, um, that is one thing that you have modern journalism, you have newspapers that send swarms of reporters to the Vatican to do their daily reports on what's going on. And these are, that Europe had just fallen in love with the idea of the newspaper. And actually give you a little example of timeline what's going on in the United States, that the London Times had just gone from doing their daily reports of the Civil War to doing their daily reports of the First Vatican Council. But then also the number of bishops there, that you have the advent of the railroad, um, you have steamships, and so there, or the starting of steamships, and so you're going to get so many more bishops from all around the world showing up. And that idea of bishops from around the world is something new too, that there's now, at this point, it's not purely a European church at this time that you're going to have bishops showing up from Australia, Malaysia, um, Africa, that this is the first council that bishops from the United States come. And an amazing statistic is that the only country that sends more bishops to the First Vatican Council than the United States is Italy. Um, so it's showing where, how much the church in the United States has grown by this time. So that the U.S. has more bishops than Spain, than France, In Germany, that's an amazing fact. Um, Now, so what they wanted to address first and foremost was they had a whole sort of series of stuff that they were going to go through. They wanted to try to help out seminaries and in Catholic education um, because Catholic education was being attacked left and right across Europe. that that is interesting. The two places where the Enlightenment, whenever it would take hold in a country, the two things that they would attack were Catholic understanding of marriage and Catholic education. That was the universal truth, that that's the first thing that they would try to undermine when they would take over. So those were two of the things that they really wanted to go through, was marriage and the family. They wanted to go through Catholic education. They wanted to um, address the relationship between faith and reason. They wanted to address, um, basically, one another way of putting it, all the stuff that the Vatican II ends up addressing was on the docket to get addressed at Vatican I. What was not on the docket to be addressed was the, uh, the concept of papal infallibility. But what ended up happening was they start off, they, they all arrive in Rome, And they start going through the work of the council. And they put together a nice document on the relationship between faith and reason. And it's succinct. It's very accurate. It's well worth reading. Um, It's very theologically precise. And what happens after that, though, is sort of out of the blue, some bishops petition, hey, can we add this concept of papal infallibility to the docket that we're going to discuss. And then some other bishops say, and in fact, instead of putting it at the end of the list, where, because it was just added later, can we move it up to the front? And so it, get moved, it gets moved to the front. And it actually for the next, I think it's around five months, that is the topic that um, is central to the goings-ons of the council. And that there is huge debates going back and forth. They write, um, they write the formula multiple times, scrap it, go back and revise it. And an interesting part about it is that the majority of the bishops are all in favor of it. But there's another fair amount of them, uh, around a fifth, that it's not that they were against the doctrine, but they just didn't think it was necessarily really a smart idea to promulgate it at that time. In particular, the places where the Catholic Church was having great gains amongst a Protestant majority, in particular England and the United States, most of the bishops didn't think it was necessarily a smart idea because they thought, great, all of the Protestants already think that we are bad Americans who are just loyal to the Pope. And if we promulgate this, they're going to doubly think so and start persecuting Catholics more so. Um, that this isn't going to win us any friends. Declaring the doctrine of papal infallibility as a dogma. Um, I mean, that, that there is a record of actually only one bishop at the entire council who didn't actually believe um, the doctrine already. Um, but... They all agreed that it was, but they just didn't think it was necessarily a smart thing to promulgate at the council at that time. And so anyway, they ended up having, going back and forth, I mean, if you can imagine, this would be just tedious work. Um, when they talk about the speeches in, favor or against that there was around 120 different speeches in favor and some of them long and boring and droll and likewise against another 50 speeches and having to sit through this and in the heat of the Roman summer before um, the invention of air conditioning I'm sure it was miserable but um, but and the only Um, Ones that tried to argue that against the doctrine as not being something they said, well, it's not that we don't believe it, but we can't define it. It's too abstract of a thing, was the Germans. The Germans were not real happy about it, but there you go. Um, The Germans liked to cause trouble. But anyway, that's a whole other topic. So, the end result of it, though, as we all know, history in that they come up with a very, very precise theological definition. And actually, in many ways, it's thanks to a bishop who was a Dominican there. Um, I don't remember his first name. His last name is Guidi. Good Italian name. Um, And anyway, and one the first thing that he does, actually, is he he steps in. He's like, you know, this language about papal infallibility, first of all, it's a stupid language because the Pope is not infallible, as he points out. However, th- what we can change it to, and they, all they, because of his logic, they do change it to, is the actual title is The Infallibility of the Pope's Dogmatic Pronouncements. Because um, he wants to point out, you know, the Pope is not infallible. He, um, it's only his dogmatic pronouncements in certain specific circumstances that are infallible. And we don't want to confuse people to think that the Pope is infallible in everything that he says. And so the, the actual document on papal infallibility, that one thing about it that is very important, is not so much that it's granting sort of new powers to the Pope. Because remember, the first sort of formal infallible statement of the Pope, actually I don't want to say first, um, Leo the Great with his Tome of Leo, was pretty much... Bam! I'm the Pope. This is an infallible statement. But the the one that we always think of of the Immaculate Conception, 1854. If you notice, that's 15 years before they declare the dogma of papal infallibility. That it's already believed and practiced. But what, in many ways, what it does is it limits the dog the doctrine rather than extends. In that it clarifies in which circumstances the pope is speaking infallibly and which ones it's not. And it is, very, if you actually go back and read through um, the document, it is very, very specific. Um, so that, um, I've, for instance, arguments with our current pope, Pope Francis, that there's plenty of theologians argue, you know what, that he has never said a single infallible word in three years. Like, it is not an ordinary thing. It is a very specific thing where the Pope, as the successor of St. Peter, speaking from the chair ex cathedra on a matter of faith and morals, pronounces, okay, this is an infallible statement. Um, They're very specific about it. But one of the things that's amazing is that when they declare, um, when this is promulgated, that immediately everyone that argued against it, they just go along. And actually, a great um, example of that is that right after it was promulgated, um, there was two bishops, um, who one from Italy and one from Little Rock, Arkansas, that immediately went up to the Pope and simply, and simply said, Holy Father, now I believe. Because once the council had said it and he had promulgated it, they believed it because it had been said. Um, and that there was all sorts of fear amongst lots of Catholics that this is going to lead to great schism, etc. It didn't lead to any of those things. That the, it led to a small schism in that there was, once again, some bishops in Germany who decided that they weren't going to accept this, and they formed what's called the Old Catholic Church, if you ever heard that term before. Um, and it was kind of like the Society of St. Pius X leaves after Vatican II. They did the same thing after Vatican I. But they're a lot smaller, but they're still around. Now, what happens, though, so they've gotten through faith and reason, they've gotten through papal infallibility, and they still haven't gotten through all the other stuff they were wanting to cover. But two days after the declaration of papal infallibility, France and Germany declare war on each other, in the Franco-Prussian War. So it's not Germany yet. This is the war, actually, that unifies Germany, that the Prussians use to unify Germany. Um, But they declare war. And the problem with that is that Italy over the last 10 years has been being forcibly united and unified by the, the northern kingdom of Piedmont. And the only thing that has been standing in the way of a fully unified Italy has been the Pope and the Papal States. And the only thing that has been able to keep out the Italian army has been the French army protecting them. That the Napoleon III of Germany has sent the French army to go and defend the Pope from the Italian government. So when the Franco-Prussian War begins, um, Napoleon III recalls all of his troops to come help defend France. That doesn't work for him so much in that France falls in three weeks. But hey. um, But it also it leaves the Papal States more or less defenseless. That there's a, I mean, great stories of Catholic volunteers from across Europe coming to try to defend the Papal States, but the end result is that the massive army left by Garibaldi, led by Garibaldi, the the famous anti-Catholic Republican general, who, interestingly, Abraham Lincoln offered the command of the Union armies to, but turned it down, um, invades Rome. And as they invade Rome, the Vatican, they try to go on for around 20 more days with the Vatican Council, but with the persecutions and everything that's going on, they are forced to call it quits. And thus ends Vatican I, never actually finishing what they're trying to finish. And they actually, so they end up suspending the council. Um, so, which brings us to almost 100 years later when the church is going to finally try to address many of these same issues. And we all know a lot of, more of the story of Vatican II, I assume, than Vatican I. I don't have to necessarily get into all of the elements, but it's famously, you've got Pope John Twenty-Third, who was actually a very conservative man, um, very... Um, traditional Pope, but he following that sort of same element and actually the church had done a lot without ecumenical councils to try to address the modern world. Leo thirteenth famously lot of his encyclicals tried to, um, to take up the, the the, the load that Vatican I had not done so, such as most of his encyclicals have to do with Catholic education, marriage and the family, and these other issues that they never got to at Vatican I. But John XXIII, famously three months after he's elected Pope, calls for a new ecumenical council. And he had his famous speech where the, the phrase that's used is, is kind of like sort of to throw open the windows to the modern world. And in many ways, that analogy is great because it sort of summarizes a lot of what Vatican II does in that it throws open the windows to the modern world. And by doing so, they let in some of the good things of the modern world. And there's also, with the end result is, that, you know what, there's a lot of stinky things that end up sneaking in as well. Um, and that's the reason why, if you want for a controversial council that's going to we still haven't entirely made up our minds on of whether it was a success, whether, um, whether there's um, any anyway, others will say whether it's a success, it, it's gonna be Vatican II. And it takes a couple of years to get the council going because they have to plan it all out. It's kind of like having a count or a conference, but for 2000 plus bishops, there's a lot of logistics that have to go into that. So it takes around two years and they come up with, he has the curia. they come up with a plan of everything that they're going to address. And interestingly, when the council starts, immediately what the first thing the bishops do, um, led especially by the, the northern European bishops, is they get the council to throw out the entire plan and come up with a new one. Um, and Vatican II is very difficult and hard to address because there's so much stuff going on. And what makes it difficult is, that there's first of all, the, the narrative that was promulgated at the time, um, that there was this priest that wrote these articles in the New York Post, and he's the one that sort of shaped the narrative of Vatican II, that many people on both sides of the, you can say sort of the ultra-liberal side in versus the ultra-conservative, um, and by that I mean what we all sort of call the, the rad trad, Side um, that they that is go- and that, that the narrative that he sort of shapes is that um, Benedict the Sixteenth later on when talking about interpretations of the Council he co- talks about what's called a hermeneutic of rupture where he says that Vatican II rather than being in continuity with all of these other twenty one councils of the past what a lot of people promulgated by this priest writing these suit. Um, these anonymous articles in the New York Post is he basically tries to argue that this is finally the church getting with it and throwing away everything in the past and sort of starting anew. And this is going to be, I mean, this is the the whole concept of the spirit of Vatican II, where it's not going to be necessarily where it, people are going to care about what gets said at, at the council and the actual documents, but... They say what what Vatican II represents, it represents the church throwing out everything in the past, which is by definition bad, and embracing the modern culture, which is good. Um, And actually... There's, I mean, the, I saw a great picture, a little thing recently on my wife's Facebook, and it was the scariest Halloween costume of them all, and it showed a person in a ghost costume with a guitar and a tambourine, and it said the spirit of Vatican II. Um, but anyway. Um, but that is not entirely an accurate portrayal of what is going on at the council. That there were some radical elements at the council that wanted to fully and just, not just um, try to look for what's good in the modern world while rebuking what is bad, but just wanted to sort of capitulate and, and embrace it all. Sure. Um, at any time in the church, you have people that are that way. But there's... A- and there was, likewise, these, there was elements at the, the council that they did not want to change a single thing. Um, but there's always people that way, too. But there was also a lot of really good bishops, good theologians, that wanted to do exactly um, what, the, what the council was intended to do, to actually look at the movements of the modern world, things that had become... Um, that were becoming popular at the time, whether theologically, that there was a theological movement to move past just strict Thomism, which of only studying St. Thomas and then manuals, written about manuals, written about manuals about St. Thomas, and go back and maybe, not that St. Thomas is bad, but study some of the early church fathers, um, study um, the scripture, that, that there were some movements in theology like that, that Vatican II is going to look at and they're going to affirm and say, yeah, there's, this is good. Um, and likewise, there's other movements that they're going to go through and they're going to address and say, okay, this is good, this is good, etc." Um, whether it is an absolute success in, all, in this addressing of the modern world is still sort of up for debate. And actually, what, um, what one of the problems, though, that Vatican II is going to face is that the quickest way to be up to date, I mean, to be out of date, is to be up to date. And so, uh, interestingly, a lot of the documents that they produce, they're out of date within years of being produced. Like, they're one, they're one on, like, the, the mass media at the time. Well, it's out of date within, I mean, a year or two before the time they write it. But even some of the major documents, like Gaudium et Space, which is the major document on the church in the modern world, that in many ways, it's out of date by the very time that they write it, because what it in its sort of optimism about the modern world, what they're looking at, is they're looking at in many ways what we'd call modernity, which is the world at the beginning of the 1900s or the world that Vatican I was addressing. But what they're not looking at is they, what they really should have done is written a document about the church and the postmodern world, um, which is the world that is beginning in the 1960s. Um, and so, and like I said, because the main hallmark what they're trying to do, and this is something that the church oftentimes has done throughout history, is look at a heresy, look at something, and affirm what's good, and condemn what's bad. This is what the church has done through, I think, of Thomas Aquinas, taking Aristotle, taking what's good in Aristotle, and leaving out what's bad. It's what St. Justin Martyr in the very early church talked about with there being, he said, spermata of truth in the pagan philosophies, little seeds of truth. And that it's the job of the church to affirm what those those seeds of truth while getting rid of what's bad. Now, what they did not, when I addressed though, when I was saying that they weren't necessarily up, most up to date with talking about the postmodern world, is that the heresy of the postmodern world is very different, and that it is primarily based on relativism. And so there's a certain degree that relativism, unlike other heresies in the past, is if you give it an inch, you lose. Um, so that the, the whole model that they end up taking of, okay, well, we're going to affirm, even in, and we'll get into next week with Lumen Gentium, affirm what's true in other religions without, in an attempt to not point out what's wrong, that, sure, like, we can go, okay, that's a good evangelical um, idea. Like, we're gonna go meet them where they are, where they are, but if the prevalent heresy of the age is relativism, which doesn't believe there even is such a thing as absolute truth, is that necessarily the wisest way to try to win a convert? Or does that simply affirm people in the idea that, well, this is true as, well, this is true at the same time. Um, and so, I mean, this is stuff like theologians are still arguing about whether this um, works or not. And there's other examples of this, that stuff that the church thinks is going to be sort of that, Bridge by which the Catholic Church is going to be able to meet the modern world where it is, such as um, the big one that they focus on is religious freedom. That how many years after are we? Um, This happens in the 1960s. That that is one of the primary things that the modern world is now attacking. Um, In in particular, that the Church is tooth and nail trying to defend what they thought was going to be the bridge with the modern world 50 years ago, the idea of the religious freedom. But another big one is the idea of marriage and the family, that there was, think of the 1950s, was a general consensus of, of what marriage was and everything, and they, the Vatican II was trying to say, hey, this is something that Catholics and the rest of the world can get, a, get on board with, and that falls apart very quickly. So in many ways, the very things that they try to meet the modern world with are the very things that are the churches being most attacked at. So, so like I said, it's not, I don't think they per- address the postmodern world properly. But, interestingly, when we talk about Vatican II, whether it's a success or not, that the stuff where they try to be most up-to-date with quickly gets out of date, but the documents that they try to be most eternal with that are the ones that, to this day, bear huge relevance um, and in particular, the, the I, would, I would say, best document of Vatican II is Dei Verbum, the Church, the, the teachings on divine revelation. It is awesome. Um, and actually, and even Lumen Gentium, when I brought in that church in relationship with other, the church with relationship with other religions. Um, and actually, another example of that, before I get into the eternal aspects of Lumen Gentium, is hopefully this even comes up next week, that with our understanding of other religions, that what they're saying is in many ways a little bit out of date. So when a church talks about Islam, for example, it's talking about Islam in the 1960s, where you go to Cairo in 1960s, you weren't gonna see a burqa. You go to Cairo now, you're not gonna see someone not in a burqa. That the the radical Islamic revival of the last 50 years was not something that they anticipated at Vatican II. but then likewise, within Lumen Gentium, though, there is these, some great um, stuff that is important for understanding within the Catholic Church that they never got to it, Vatican I. So for one thing, they wanted to, when talk, after doing the document on the infallible teaching of the Pope, there was supposed to be a second document explaining the role of bishops within the Church and their relationship with the Pope, but they just never got to it. Um, so they have a lot of great elements within the church that are timeless. The elements of the of the council on the universal called holiness and the laity's role the laity's role within the church are timeless. And actually, and even what Vatican II starts to do too is it does a great job of taking some Thomistic themes and laying the groundwork for a modern Catholic anthropology um, that that. John Paul II is going to truly sort of expound through the theology of the body, but in particular, um, the way they start with there is talking about Christ being the, um, I guess the, the necessary means for understanding of ourselves, and that that there's some really just awesome stuff with that. And the, the reason why when they go through and explain is they talk about well that the human beings, according to St. Thomas, were created. In, to be in a state of grace. Um, and so, if we are to probably understand what a human being is, as God intended it to be, you would need to see a human being in a state of grace. And who, more than anyone else throughout history, I, um, exemplifies um, that state of grace, obviously God himself become man, Jesus Christ, who is, we can say, the exemplar of what it means to be a man. And likewise, um, for understanding our eschatological end, that, which is to be united with Christ Himself, you have to start with Christ there too. That there is, I mean, like I say, a lot of just timeless, fantastic um, stuff in Vatican II. So, 19, or Pope John XXIII, as we all know, dies partway through, and the majority of the stuff that happens in Vatican II is going to be under Pope Paul VI. And he's going to be the one that ends up promulgating most of it. Um, All right. And a good book, if I was going to recommend one good book for reading about Vatican II, is that is Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. He was a, um, a theological advisor at Vatican II. He was not a bishop yet at the time. But his book, The Theological Highlights of Vatican II, is very good. And he's very frank when he goes through and criticizes the parts that are too... Um, sort of loosey-goosey and just not theologically precise enough. And he's... um, It's a good, solid read. And it's not that long. All right, any questions? Comments? Anything to add? Snide remarks? The theological highlights of Vatican II. But what makes Vatican II so hard to understand is that it does not fall the history of the Catholic Church in the last hundred years does not fall into super neat categories that we like historically to be able to say well here's this category there's these people over here, these people over here put them in their boxes and then sort of to explain everything. That's even like the rise of the terms conservative versus liberal in the church it doesn't quite work that way we're just taking political terms and trying to address them or use them In the church, and terms that came out of when we even actually we don't say like the right versus the left. These are terms that simply came from the French Revolution that you had the more traditional people sitting on the right, and you had the more liberal people sitting on the left of the chamber. That trying to take those terms for understanding um, what entirely is going on doesn't entirely work. Um, Yeah. not I think have a understanding All right, well, I would say the, the difference, big one too, oh, okay, the French understanding of liberalism would be um, the idea of government based upon more of the principles of Jean Jacques Rousseau, um, which is first and foremost, I th- you can see this within the French Revolution, um, which are sort of the hallmarks that come from Rousseau's philosophy of, you hear the, the old phrases, liberty, equality, fraternity. Um, Liberty, equality, fraternity. Now, part of the difference between the American and the French version is you take similar concepts and you can almost sort of linguistically turn them upon their head simply by removing God from the picture. And that, so if, um, so if you are to take the, the, the idea of liberty, that all men should have liberty, and understand it within a proper Christian context... Um, that, in understanding how the philosophical term of liberty was always used, how is it always used? Well, ultimately, it means fulfilling your telos, your nature, um, having the ability to do what's right. And within many of the American founders, that is the context in which they were coming from. And the big reason why is that America was not, despite a lot of popular teaching, was not that. Influenced by the Enlightenment. And the reason why is you had some American figures, such as Thomas Jefferson, that were reading some of these Enlightenment Enlightenment figures, but that's not who most Americans were reading. That America was unique of every country in the entire world, and that almost every single American in the 1700s had received a classical education in a one-room schoolhouse studying Latin and Greek. And what were they reading? They were reading Homer. They were reading um, Virgil. They were reading all of these ancient works of Greece and Rome. And when, so when they, and that's what um, you have trying to Tocqueville, who talks about he's just amazed when he gets to the United States and the average farmer goes up from his fields in the day, goes home and is reading the Odyssey in Greek. Um, he's like, that's just the average farmer in Kentucky. I mean, this is... Um, so, uh, when America is doing the, a lot of these things, the, reading these terms, that, the, that if you want to see the, the figure that, that, for instance, that t- John Adams talks more about than any other figure in his writings, the person that he quotes the most in everything is Hercules. Um, like, <laughs> that, that is his hero. Um, and in many ways, when they were trying to understand Hercules, like oh, the old figure of Hercules. Um, and, then, and when you're t- trying to understand liberty and the idea of representative government, they weren't looking into any sort of modern model that actually the government that the Americans most most looked to for trying to understand the idea of self-representation, etc., was they looked to the most successful republic in the history of the world, the longest-lasting republic in the history of the world, and that is the Republic of Venice. That is where they looked, first and foremost, for how they were going to form their government, etc. That's very, very fundamentally different. And so likewise... um, But when you take God, and and it's because Americans, for the most part, Christian men, or at least deists, they believed in God, um, and most of them were at Christian, and they believed that there was actual ends that you're supposed to live out. When you take God out of the picture, you can't say that the definition of liberty is to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. That does not make sense. And thus, it becomes sort of the maximizing of personal choice. It becomes liberty. Liberty is just being able to do what you wish. Um, as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. Um, Because then you're infringing upon their liberty. But even the idea of equality, you read through the Declaration of Independence, it's very clear where man's equality comes from, is that all men are created by God, and therefore are equal in that they are all made in the image of God. Does that mean that they're all equal in status? Does that mean they're all equal in wealth, in gifts, abilities? No, the only thing that makes them equal is that they're all human beings. While there is a sort of, there's a reason why Rousseau is going to be in many ways the father of socialism, because their understanding of equality is well, people should be equal in all things. Um, It is uh, egalitarianism. Um, And then, likewise, the idea of fraternity that this is the one that becomes most easily misunderstood that we look at the idea of fraternity and it's like, okay. Isn't, aren't we trying to help out each other, et cetera? But that's not what they meant by fraternity. What this comes from is a concept from Rousseau called the general will. And what Rousseau, when he talks about the general will, um, is trying to say that ultimately, if you, and this actually goes back, I mean, this is a whole big sort of train for going back all the way to Descartes, where Descartes was his famous. I think, therefore, I am, that he was trying to basically, essentially ends up arguing that we know something's true because we decide it for ourselves, because you start with the sovereign self and then move out from there, rather than starting with a fixed reality that we, have, that we receive, you start with the self and we constitute reality for ourselves, that a lot of people were dissatisfied with that. A lot of philosophers throughout um, history were dissatisfied with Descartes' uh, formula and John Locke is the one, one in particular in England, who really was dissatisfied with this. And he came up actually with this idea, and Rousseau took it and loved it and went farther with it. And basically the idea that they came up with is, well, how do, can you know that something's true? Is it because I think it's true? No. But it's because we all agree that it's true. That what basically the end result of this, the general will, is that, it sort of undermines the concept of absolute truth and rather truth gets decided by a majority vote. So this is sort of the absolutizing of democracy. Whatever the majority wants, that's good. Um, And that idea was once again very much condemned within the American Founding Fathers. The reason why Thomas Jefferson called democracy two coyotes and a chicken deciding what's for dinner. that, that's why within the American system, they were very, very wary of democracy and this idea of the general will, which is the exact opposite of the French Revolution where it's going to be mob rule. The mob wants what the, other, the minority has, chop off their head and take it. Um, so those are, I'd say, the, the fundamental difference of liberalism within Europe and the United States.